Well, good morning, everybody. You guys, it's, you're loud today. I love that. So it's good to be here with you today. If you're new, if you're visiting, I met one family out here who's visiting with us today. You don't know this. So this whole series was birthed out of my mistake. For Christmas of last year, I decided to make my wife a present. And I got to say, it looked fantastic. It was Christmas Day. I knew it wasn't completely done, but it was close enough. And so I told her, look, I've got some finishing touches I'd like to put on it just to make it even better. And so when it came time, I loaded it up Christmas Eve with all of her crafts and cards and things. I'd made her like a craft center. And then I realized the drawers wouldn't come out. Yes, thank you. And what I later discovered was I didn't have the right tools. And without the right tools, I was forced to use the best that I had. And the best that I had wasn't good enough. And so now, here it is, almost six months later, and I'm finishing redoing the project. So... I started thinking about this and going, you know, there's been so many times in my life that I felt like I hit a wall or a major speed bump or a pothole. And when I hit that thing, uh, somebody came along later and said, you know, if you'd, have, if you'd have just done this, you'd have missed that pothole. And I'm like, where were you three months ago, six months ago, 12 months ago, 10 years ago? So I kind of started thinking about that and going, look, I think it's time for me to share with you some of these lessons that I've had to learn the hard way over and over and over again. And my goal, my hope, is that you won't have to hit those speed bumps. You'll be able to succeed better in life. You'll be more successful because of these things. And so today, today, we're going to kick this off with this. How many of you are familiar? I know this seems like a cheesy question, but I never want to assume. How many of you are familiar with something called the Vietnam War? Just checking, okay? I was born in 19... So... I've only read about it. I was too young to really understand it. There was something in the Vietnam War called the Hanoi Hilton. Now, how many of you have heard of that? Okay, most of you. So those of you who don't know, let me bring you up to speed. There's no shame in this. I actually learned about the Hanoi Hilton, uh, I think it was two years ago. I spoke at a men's retreat, and they brought a gentleman in, and uh, he got to teach us because he actually was there. And I believe, if I remember correctly, he was there for six years. It was a prisoner of war camp. And he was captured, and he told us many things, and there was also many things he wouldn't tell us. I get the feeling it was brutal. So as the story goes, I didn't hear this from him. I read this in a book. As the story goes, the U.S. Special Forces finally decided it was time to end the capture of their prisoners. They had spent weeks preparing for this exact moment. Nobody knew it was going to happen. Nobody was releasing it, a very tight-knit group of people. And when they went in, because we have the best of the best of the best, amen? They pulled it off without a hitch. They went in and they got out as if nobody knew they were there. Now, just moments, it might have been days, I don't remember now, before the soldiers went in, they flew a drone without a person in it, just like a computer drone, whatever, before the drone's up today, I'm sure. But it went in and it was to take pictures of the camp to make sure that they knew everything. And at a critical moment, as the drone was going in, it banked left, and that turned the camera slightly up towards the sky, up towards the clouds. And so at a critical juncture, it missed an important piece of information. Guess what that information was? There were no prisoners in camp on that day. So the reason that our soldiers went in and got out without a hitch is because they went in and there was nothing there to save. They went in and literally found it empty. Now, I'm sure, and look, I wasn't really, either I wasn't alive or I was old enough to care. I'm sure the government could have had all kinds of ways to spin this. Not saying they did. 
They could have said, well, you know, our plan was just to give hope to our soldiers and let them know that we can come in and we're working on it. Or our hope was to intimidate the enemy and let them know that, you know, we've got the ability to get in here and we're ready. You won't be able to stop us. Or I don't know, maybe maybe the hope was to tell the nation we're working on it. There's things we're doing that you don't know about. But the reality is the plan, the goal was to get in and save our men and get them out. And they weren't able to succeed. And the thing that kept them from succeeding was an important piece of wisdom. (laughs) They aren't there. (laughs) Now, I have found over and over and over again in my life that there's an important piece of wisdom that's often missing. So what I want to do is I want to give you a, what I would call a fairly foolproof, if not completely foolproof plan to make your life less painful and far easier. Now, this doesn't mean you won't ever hard, have hard times because I am convinced our Heavenly Father lets us go through hard times in order to teach us and grow us. So you may very well be led by the Lord or allowed by the Lord to do something even if you walk this path and it's painful for your good. What I am convinced of, though, is if you will walk this three-part path that I'm going to give you today, you will find your life to be more successful, to be more fruitful. Here's one of the reasons I know. The Bible says it. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 says this. Wisdom, wisdom will multiply your days and add years to your life. There you go, man. Everybody ought to put that on like their, their calling card. If you become wise, you will be the one to benefit. If you scorn wisdom... You will be the one to suffer. Okay, so here's option A, blessing. Option B, suffering. All right, your pick, A or B. I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer. I think it's obvious. So let's talk about how we get there. So here we go. Three principles. Three principles for gaining wisdom. Three principles for gaining wisdom. Principle number one. You can write this down if you want. It's in the notes. It's in our app if you want. You can open up your phone, download the app, connect to our Wi-Fi. You can do that right now. God is the creator, and he knows everything. Fear him and seek to learn his ways. Now, this whole thing, there's so much in this little little phrase right here. God is the creator and he knows everything. Many of us have a faulty view of God. We think that God is trying to hold us back or prevent us from seeing something or experiencing something or doing something. This is what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan comes along and says, you know, God really just doesn't want you to blah, 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 blah. If you do this and disobey God, you'll become like him. There's this temptation in Eve and in Adam to not trust God. This little phrase brings us back to saying, look, God created everything so he knows more than you. So if you'll trust him, if you'll follow him, even when it doesn't make sense, it's going to go better for you. Why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because wisdom begins, wisdom begins with a proper understanding of who God is and who we are not. You cannot ever be wise if you believe you are the creator or sustainer of all knowledge. If you are so arrogant and prideful as to think that you already today know everything you need to know, that you probably are living a fool's life and are one step away from the edge of a cliff. In fact, Proverbs says this again, Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10, the verse right before 11 to 12 we read earlier says this, fear the Lord, sorry, fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. So, if you want to grow in your good judgment, then you grow in your what? Knowledge of God. Now, let's talk about this word fear for a minute. 
The problem with the word fear, I did a whole series on fear. I believe it was last year around Easter, whenever that was. I can't remember what we called it. The whole idea with fear in the Bible is not what we think of. We think of fear, what we tend to think of is something that is bigger and stronger and we ought to be intimidated by. When the Bible talks about fear, it talks about something that is bigger, stronger, wiser, more loving, more generous, more trustworthy, more faithful. And the bottom line of fear in the Bible is simply this. You will worship what you fear. You can write that one down. A little tattoo to remind you. You will worship what you fear. So, men, if you fear not measuring up, you will invest all of your time and energy in ways that you believe, you convince yourself, prove that you measure up. It could be clothes, it could be cars, it could be wife or wives that look a certain way. Could be pouring all of your time and energy, as we talked about last week, into your job. Women, if you believe, let's just say it's the same thing, you've got to keep a good image. You want everybody to believe you've got it all together, and so is your family. You will burn out and stress out your kids, putting them in every single club possible. You will push them not just to do their best in school, but they must get all A's. Why? Because so-and-so can. Some of you will starve yourselves and work yourselves out literally to death because you've got to have the perfect body. Because you're so afraid of whatever it is, not being good enough, not measuring up, not having, not succeeding. You maybe you're afraid that God won't provide, but because of that fear, you're worshiping something other than God himself. That's what it means to fear the Lord. To say, I'm going to trust you above all things. I know you know more, you're smarter than me. Fear is not what we have made it to be. Trust the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He's going to make your paths straight. So, here's a question. How do we actually do that? Well, a few things. Number one, we gain in knowledge by knowing the Lord. And the only way we can know the Lord is by reading what he has revealed to us. Now, this is an iPad, but I've got my Bible on here, I promise. This, yes, buy an iPad, you'll know the Lord. Every teenager in the room went, thank you, Pastor. You will grow in your understanding of God by digging into his word. Let me just teach on this for a second. So I just read a great article, and, and I didn't write down the gentleman's name, and I should have between the services. Maybe by next service I'll have the name right. But there was a gentleman in the, within the last decade. He was one of the most well-known atheists. He was more well-known than Richard Dawkins. In fact, he even rebuked Richard Dawkins because towards the end of his life, he wrote a book within a couple years of his death, and he moved from atheism to deism. And this is huge. Because basically, as he started looking at all the evidences, he came to the conclusion there must be a creator. There must be somebody who has intelligently designed. So he wrote for decades about how there is no higher power. And at the end of his life, he came to the conclusion there must be a higher power. But in this interview that I read, he was pressed to, about specific questions on God and Jesus. And he said, look, I am a deist, not a theist. Now, you may not know this. A deist is somebody who believes that God created everything and then just set it in motion. It's kind of like God made a, a watch or a clock, and he set it on the table, and he walked away. And no matter what is happening with that watch or clock, he built it to work a certain way, and so, so be it. A theist, which is what we are. It's what the Bible describes. We believe that God did create everything. We believe that God does know everything. We believe, though, that God is also intimately and actively involved with his <clears throat> creation. <clears throat> and because of that, he left us something called the Bible. <clears throat> the Bible, <clears throat> I'm just going to finish it.
<coughs> All right. The Bible is 66 books made up of roughly um, 30 to 40 different authors. Some of it we're not 100% sure who wrote which one. It was written in three different continents. Continents? I don't know what that is. Continents. I think that's a different word. Anyway, I've done that before. Over a span of 1,500 years. Some of you were here that day. And, <clears throat> and in roughly three different languages. And yet, from beginning to end, tells the same story. Man, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. They just had to, in this new reboot of Star Wars, they had to ignore a huge chunk of the canon of Star Wars because their stories all contradict themselves. And yet the Bible, from beginning to end, over 1,500 years, multiple authors, multiple languages, multiple continents, tells the exact same story with unbelievable precision and detail. This is huge. Because if you want to grow in your knowledge of the Lord, then there's one place you could turn and know that it's going to be right. Did you know and then in roughly the last 20 to 30 years, there is more information being produced than in all of history combined leading up to that point. That is mind-boggling. And the reason is, the internet, books, retail, there are more voices in your life than at any other point in all of history telling you what to do and how to do it. And what the Bible tells us over and over and over again is if you want to know what the right thing to do is, what wisdom really looks like, then simply go to the place where God revealed himself, the Bible. And it's the critical piece of information you need. And the more you go to the Bible, the more God will draw on what you know to guide and direct your life. I love this little phrase. So don't put it up yet, guys. Just wait. Andy Stanley wrote a book, and it used to be called, the one I read is called The Best Question Ever. He, they later changed the name to Ask It, The Best Question Ever. So either way, you go to Amazon, you look this thing up, you're going to find it. And in this book, it's all about wisdom, Andy asks this fantastic question. Here's the question he says, the best question you can ever ask is this, what is the wise thing for me to do? Now, what I want to do is take that question and apply it specifically to this first piece of wisdom. So, ask yourself this. Ask yourself this. In light of what I know the Bible says about this thing that I'm dealing with, this thing that I'm facing, what is the wise thing for me to do? In light of what I know, what is the wise thing for me to do here? So, some of you weren't here. I used this illustration before, but we were going through a marriage series a few years ago. And I was reading all this stuff, and God was convicting me. And then, as God always does, he gave me the perfect opportunity to apply it in my own home as uh, my wife and I were having a fight. And she was wrong. I'm just saying. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget. So she, I really do believe she was wrong. I just have no idea what it was about. That's how most fights go, don't they? So whatever it was we were fighting about, she said something. I got angry. I snapped at her. I said some hurtful, meanful things in a way that was also disrespectful, hurtful, and meanful. Meanful. I don't think that's a word. Anyway, so it's time for bed. We go upstairs to get ready for bed, and I'm brushing my teeth angry. You know, I'm rubbing off all my gums, and um, I'm frustrated, and, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me. And he brings to mind certain passages of the Bible. One of them, I don't have it on the screen, but one of them is this, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 4. <laughs> and don't sin by letting anger control you. <clears throat> don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. 
So far, I'm not doing well by God's scale. He goes on, it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other. But she's wrong! Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And no longer could I ignore the Holy Spirit. I put my toothbrush down, I went over to my wife, and I said, Rachel, I'm sorry. Now, you ever see those old commercials? Remember the old Bugs Bunny, for those of you who are like at least my age remember these? You got the little like devil sitting on one soldier shoulder and the, the angel sitting on the other. That is exactly what's going on in the moment. And I, got, I got my flesh on one side going, you know you're right though. And if you say you're sorry, it's like acknowledging you were wrong. And then I got the Holy Spirit over here going, get rid of all anger and rage. Use only what is helpful to build up others. Forgive as God has forgiven you. And so I looked at her, and I told this little guy to shut up for a minute. And I just said, you know, I I shouldn't have said this. I shouldn't have done this. I was wrong. Now, everything in me wanted to say, I was wrong, but the reason I did it is because. But I just bit my tongue, and I said, I was wrong. And my wife looked at me, and she said, I forgive you. I said, thank you. And I went a little deeper. I said, I don't want to just stop there. I tried to hurt you, and I said this, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yes. I love you. Of course I forgive you. Thank you. I went back to brush my teeth, and that little voice kept going, you should tell her, but you're right because da 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 I'm like, but the Holy Spirit just told me, based off the scriptures that I have planted in my heart, that this is what I need to do. So, God, I'm trusting you know what's best. <sighs> Fine. Put down my toothbrush, getting ready to hop into the bed. I'm always in bed before my wife. And all of a sudden, she says, oh, yeah, and another thing. Now, I've been talking about this in our last series. Now I got God on my side. She's got to deal with him because I already said I was sorry. So I kindly went over to her, and I listened to her, and she vented. And when she was done, I said, you know what? You're right. I did that, and I'm sorry. And I said, can I ask you a question, though? She said, yeah. I said, I already apologized for that five minutes ago, and you said you forgave me. So either I haven't shown you that I really am sorry, or (laughs) you haven't forgiven me yet. I think my wife got convicted. She got silent. She goes, I'm just being stupid. No, I forgive you. It really wasn't that big of a deal, whatever it was. I went to bed feeling restored to my wife. Maybe like I won a little bit, but feeling restored to my wife. And here's what's crazy. What happened next is in the time that it took for my wife to finish getting ready for bed, she gets out, climbs into bed, and she says, hey, I'm sorry too. And then she owned what I knew I was right about all along. I said, hey, honey, can we record this? Hang on. Just say you were right again. It's going to be my ringtone, all right? So everybody will know when you call me. I actually think I did make that joke. But here's the point. Here's the point. I have hidden God's word in my heart so that when God needs to, he could draw it out. It doesn't mean I don't have to die. That doesn't mean it was easy, but I knew what God wanted for me. God did not want me to be cruel or harsh or angry to my wife. He never, ever, ever wants that even if I'm right about what we're fighting about. It is not Christ honoring. So how did God lead me to that conclusion? By his word. So what's the wise thing for me to do here? Is to say you're sorry for what you did wrong and to let God work 
on her. All right, hopefully that's helpful and convicting enough. Second point of wisdom I want you to hang on to. God is kind and good. He wants to help you. Just ask him. Now this is important because I think, this is my theory, I think many of us think that maybe God is not kind and good or what God means by kind and good is not what we mean by kind and good. Here's the opposite extremes of how this plays out. Many of us think of God as like maybe a genie and you rub the lamp and God pops out and you make your wishes and he has to do it because you asked him. And that's not at all how this works. Or some of us are tempted to think that maybe God is not really abundantly kind and abundantly good. That we better get our lives together first, and then God will act on our behalf. And if we don't have all the pieces put together, you might as well forget it. The reality is, God is kind and good and wants to bless you. In fact, I'll show it to you. It comes right out of his word. Look at James chapter 1, verse 5. James says this, if you need wisdom, ask our, what's the word there? Come on now, what's the word there? Now, isn't that amazing? James could have picked a plethora of words that he could have picked there. He could have picked, ask our stingy God. He could have said, ask our judgmental God. And he didn't go that route. He went very clearly to this analogy of generous. It's as if God has a massive bank account of wisdom, and he just can't wait to give it to you. He can't wait to pour it out on you. He can't wait to lead you. He can't wait to guide you. He can't wait to bless you with it. He'll give it to you. In fact, notice this, he will not rebuke you for asking. Now, that's an interesting phrase, James. Why did you need to stick that in there? I mean, isn't that common sense that if you go to God and ask him for wisdom, he's not going to rebuke you? Apparently, common sense is not so common, is it? Why is that? Perhaps the people in James' day, like many of you, struggle with your true image of who God is. And it's based off something other than what God has revealed himself in his word to be. And I want to say this is especially true for those of you who have a father wound in your life. If you had an absent father in your life, daddy, here on earth, you will tend to struggle with believing that your father in heaven is also absent. If you had an abusive dad in your life, you will struggle to view God as cruel or rude or mean or harsh. Now, this isn't an always, but this is a tends to. If you asked your dad a question and he was too busy or too tired or too stressed and he yelled at you or rebuked you or told you to go away or he was too busy, then you will tend to view your God the same way. By the way, side note to this sermon, men, this is why what you do in your home is so unbelievably important. You cannot downplay your love and your interaction with your kids. If everything else is more important than your attention to your kids, then you will teach them something about God you didn't even mean to teach them. And instead, James says, just ask. Not only will he not rebuke you, he can't wait to give it to you. Now, this is huge. I want to finish this point because James later says, and I don't have this on here. James later says, you do not have because you do not ask. 
The reason is God's got this bank account. He's like, let me write you this check. Again, the generosity and wisdom, not money. Let me write you this check for wisdom. Man, I want to teach you. I want to show you. I want to reveal to you. I want to help you. I want to lead you. I want to guide you. I'm a good, good father. You can trust me. I want to do this for you. But you don't even ask, so you never really get this deposit that I have waiting for you. And then James goes on and he says, and some of you, you keep asking, but God doesn't give you the deposit anyway because you just want to spend what he gives you on yourself. Now, you put it all in context. What's James saying? God is not going to be manipulated by humans. God knows when you're humble. God knows when you want wisdom, when you want to do the right thing, and you just need to, to figure out what the right steps are. And so God will honor that. He will lead you. He will. Now, if your real goal, your real motive is to do something conniving or deceptive or spend it all on yourself, man, God sees through that. You can't fake it out. So how do we get this from God? Well, James goes on. He says this. When you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. It's huge for what he's about to say. In other words, you're not going, okay, God, I really need wisdom to handle this situation, but I'm going to go ask Dr. Phil what he thinks too. All right, God, I really need wisdom here. However, I'm going to check out Google, see what Google says. Now, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to ask you to help me, and I'm going to trust you. And then he says, do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. What James is trying to get to here is this. When you ask God for wisdom, trust that he is giving it to you. You don't have to go around wondering, like, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, did God do this, did God do this, did God do this? You can actually just have faith that God is going to follow through and he's going to lead you. It may not be in the way you thought, but he is going to lead you. Now, look at this next piece. He's not done. Such people who are just doubting and unloyal should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. So this whole process of trying to figure out wisdom from God has to do with aligning our hearts to his. God, what do you want for my marriage? What do you want for my job? What do you want for my family? What do you want for my community? What do you want for my life? Not what do I want? What's going to make me happy? God, what do you want? And if I'm asking honestly, God, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go all in. I'm going to follow you no matter how hard it is when you lead me there. Because if you lead me to it, God, I'm going to trust that you're going to lead me through it. So I'll follow you. And when God does that, when you do that, God shows up and he blesses. Here's, here's a good way to pray that. Taking Andy's wisdom about what's the wise thing for me to do. If you prayed this prayer to God. God, in light of my past experiences, my current situation, and my future hopes and dreams, God, what is the wise thing for me to do? The reason I love this phrase. Because your past experiences are God's playground for teaching you wisdom. If you will look back on your life and take an, a biblical, honest approach to the things that you've gone through, the mistakes that you've made, the decisions that you've made, God will not waste a moment, not waste a moment. But if you look at them with arrogance or puffed up pride, or if you look at them skewed and not through his eyes or his lens, you'll look back on your life and you'll make decisions that'll affect your future that aren't from him. You'll look back and you won't own things that are your fault. You won't repent of things that you did. You won't change your heart and your life to align with his so that in the future you didn't learn the lesson. You've always got this half-truth thing going on. 
So you have to go back and learn that same lesson. You keep hitting speed bump after speed bump, pothole after pothole. And pretty soon the tire blows out and you're sitting on the side of the road going, how did I get here? God's going, you ready to listen now? In the light of your current situation, but I love this one, and my future hopes and dreams. Look, at the end of my life, I want to stand before my Father in heaven, and I want to hear Jesus say this, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now let me put you in charge of many things. Your faithfulness to God here will somehow, guys, in ways I don't fully understand, be connected to your responsibility in eternity. It's not off your ability. It's not about, you know, if you're good here, if you're smart here, you get more smart there. No, no, no. If you're faithful to what God has entrusted you with here, then there you get more responsibility based off your faithfulness. This is huge. This is not the health and wealth prosperity gospel. This is not if you do the right things, God will just give you more money. No, 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 no. This has to do with following through on everything God has called you and only you to do. That's all he's asked. The parable of the talents, this is the whole point. Are you faithful to the responsibilities that God has given you? Whether you're a one talent, a two talent, a three talent, a five talent, it doesn't matter. Are you faithful to what he gave you? And those who are faithful were given more. Not on earth. In eternity. I don't know about you, but it just sounds like a really good investment plan to trade 80 years here for eternity. Most of us go the other way around. So, in light of my past experiences, my current situation, my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? And then number three, principle number three. Here we go. Almost done. God has given wisdom to other believers. Seek their help, encouragement, and prayers. Now, I want to camp on this one. Most of us flip this order. Something comes up, we don't know what to do, so what do we do? We run to mom or dad. We run to another believer. We run to our pastor. We run to everybody else and anything else. We turn on Google. We turn on the TV. We go find somebody else who might have answers, and we ask them this, and we start here. And then what happens is we build a foundation that then God is trying to rebuild. So sometimes, sometimes, God will use what other people say to direct you. And that's good. That's Christ-honoring. Truth is truth, okay? So it doesn't matter where you get the truth. If it's true, it's true. But oftentimes, I find myself in meetings in my office, and I'm sitting down with somebody, and they're going through a hard season, and they're looking for wisdom. And I'll say to them, sometimes a problem is too big. I don't have time to really invest in this. They need ongoing help. And I say, have you ever considered a counselor? And they say, yes. And many times, people say, yes. In fact, I'm meeting with a counselor. And well, who are they? They're X, Y, Z. Well, look, I don't know them. Do they love Jesus? I don't know. Well, do they ever bring up the Bible? No. Well, do they ever bring up anything related to God? Well, they'll often quote spiritual things. I'm like, whoa, whoop, hit the brakes here. I realize some of you are counselors and you're godly men and women, and because your job and the insurance and all that, you can't talk about God. I get that. But many of you who are in that situation, you are rooted in God's word. So what you're doing is you're speaking truth out of God's word, even if you can't actually quote the Bible. You're still tapping into truth. But listen, if you're going to somebody who doesn't know the word of God, the best they can give you is what somebody else told them or some painful experience from their life. And you don't know if it's true or not. You don't know if it's going to stand the test of time. See, the great thing about this book is it was completed 2,000 years ago. It stood the test of time. The things in here are absolutely true in every culture, in every language, in all times. So we keep coming back to it. 
That's why we go to other believers and say, help me out. I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. But we do that last, not first. We go there last because God's already built the foundation on his word. We've already sought him in prayer. And now they're putting on those finishing touches. They're turning us five or ten degrees. Or they're calling us to 180 because we just didn't know something about God. And they taught us. And they revealed it to us. And you went, oh, that makes sense. But it's last. Let me show you this. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 5 and 6, and then 13 to 14. The wise are mightier than the strong. And those with knowledge grow stronger and stronger. So... Don't go to war without wise guidance. Make sense? Victory depends on having what? Many advisors. Part of what's going on here is when we go to look for people to advise us, we often go to people who tell us what we want to hear and not necessarily what we need to hear. And the reason we go to more than one person It's because we can test the wisdom and see if it's holding up in multiple places. Because if God has moved in the hearts of many people, then we can know if many people are speaking to our lives. Wow, there must be something in this. Because multiple men and multiple women are saying the same things to me. And it lines up with the prayers that I'm having with God. It lines up with the Holy Spirit saying. And it lines up with God's will. And keep looking. I love this. Solomon goes on. My child, eat honey for it is good. And the honeycomb is sweet to the taste. In the same way, wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, you will have a bright future and your hopes will not be cut short. If you find it, you will have a bright future and your hopes will not be cut short. So what do we do? We keep looking for it. Keep looking for it. Keep looking for it. Until we have absolute confidence because it aligns with God's word and aligns with the spirit and aligns with what others are telling us that it's true and good. So how can I find this? Everybody needs one or two or three people in their lives that you trust and that you go to. They're your go-to wisdom people. If everybody here is looking to come to me, there will be roughly 2,000 people here today. I can't sit around and give everybody wisdom on their life. There are many godly men men and women in this church with wisdom who can help you, who can serve you. And so you go to them. But here's a key. I want you to learn this. Here's a key. You need to have people in your life who are intimately involved enough in your life to know where your pitfalls are. Here's a way to pray this, and I'll tell you more in a second. So, using Andy's question, in light of what you, you go to this person, look, in light of what you know about my life, and based on your experiences, what is the wise thing for me to do here? Now, the reason I word this like this, when you're talking to your friends, so look, you've got to have people who know your life. Almost all of us, I stole this, this phrase from uh, John Ortberg, who wrote a great book, Our Elders and Executive Team in Reading, and talking about the shadow mission. All of us have a shadow mission. We're all doing good things and great things for God and for others, but the reality is it's a shadow mission. And it might be bl- where you get blinded by your greed, you get blinded by your lust, you get blinded by your selfishness or your pride, and you think you're doing great things, and you've got all these great justifications, but the reality is you're living your shadow mission and not the mission that God gave you. And you need people in your life who know enough about your life that they can look at you and say, look, man, I don't think you're being honest with yourself. Remember five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever, 30 years ago? Remember when you did that? Remember this is what happened? Man, you're doing it again. You're about to walk into that same pothole. And the whole point is to humble yourself enough to listen to them and say, you know what? I really, really, really want to do this, but I think you're right. Thank you for loving me enough 
to tell me what I need to hear and not what I want to hear. And then there's this great point. And then you ask them, look, based off your experiences, if I could teach you anything, one of the things that I do with anybody, anytime I meet somebody whose marriage has failed or anytime I meet a pastor who's no longer in ministry or anytime I meet a pastor who's been doing it for a long time, no offense, I'm not looking for somebody who's been doing it five years. I don't think they have enough wisdom yet. I, I, they'll get there. I've been there. But when I'm learning, I want to learn from people who are further ahead from me, people who've made mistakes I don't want to make. So I always ask this question. Look, given what you've been through, what wisdom do you have for somebody like me? I just did this this week. I was talking to a guy who used to be in ministry who stumbled into an adultery. And I said, okay, look, man, I'm, I'm a married guy. I'm 39. I got three little whippersnappers running around the house. I don't want to end up where you ended up. What advice would you give me? And he said, always have a window on your door. And I said, man, that's done. Praise God, when I was young in ministry, somebody gave me this advice. They said, Matt, you don't ever counsel women one-on-one, -on -one, especially if they're going through a very hard situation in life. What will happen is you start to take on their problems because you're a problem solver and you fix people and they start to look at you and they start to put on you feelings they had for their husband or their ex-husband or somebody else. And if you're not careful, next thing you know, you'll start developing a relationship with them that you should be developing with your wife. And I got warned many, many times, and I keep seeing that trend. And so as I talk to people who've been there, they're sharing their pain, their past experiences, and it's helping keep me out of their trouble. Man, who's in your life that you look at and say, I don't want to end up where you end up, or I want to end up where you ended up? What would you tell me? And then take what they're giving you and seek the Lord and say, God, does this line up with Scripture, or do they get lucky? Does this line up with the Holy Spirit, or do they just stumble into something? Now, I want to close with this. So, communion servers, I'm going to ask you to leave the room. Sorry, you're going to have to go online and listen to this. This is the best part. I'm going to read a passage, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, over you. And this is Paul. I want you to hear Paul's words to the church in Colossae. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray this back over you. And I'm going to ask the Lord to lead you and give you wisdom for whatever it is you're dealing with right now. Let's read it first. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. Paul says, We have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. To hear that. Paul's love for them. Think about this as it relates to number three. Those people you're going to for wise counsel, Paul's like, man, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm on my knees fighting the spiritual battle for you. We, he says, ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will. Man, is that number one? And to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Is that number two? That's almost like Paul was listening to my sermon. Then, the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Dads, grandfathers, husbands in the room, if you're near your family, I want you to pull them close. Put your arm around them, grab a hand. I know some of you are too manly. Get over it. Jesus grabbed little kids and he put them in his lap. Jesus at the Last Supper, we are told, was literally laying up against John, the disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's time to be a little bit affectionate. Now, if you are in this room and you're single, guess what? You have a heavenly father, and he is right here with you right now, and he is wrapping his arms around you. 
If you're with a close friend, that's okay. You can snuggle up as long as it's appropriate. <laughs> Biblical, Christ-honoring. I want to pray Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 over you right now. And when I'm done praying, we're going to go into a time of communion. Let's pray. Father God, we need you. Lord, I, I'm just giving advice on wisdom up here, but really the stuff that we're going to apply these things to are life-changing. What do I do for the rest of my life? What job do I take? What college do I go to? Do I quit this job and take another? Do I take this job that's sitting in front of me? Do I make this move? Do I buy this house? Do I fight for my marriage? Do I walk away from this sin? God, the things that are, the ways that we're going to apply this are huge, and we need you. We need you. So, God, as I pray this prayer, just like Paul prayed over the church at Colossae, would you move and honor it in this place? God, we ask you to give us complete knowledge of your will. God, would you give us spiritual wisdom and understanding? So, God, we pray that you would help us to always live in a way that honors you and a way that pleases you and not ourselves. Help us to die to selves. God, help us to find the freedom of self-forgetfulness. God, we pray that our lives will produce every kind of good fruit. God, we will come to know you more and more. Lord, bless our lives and eternity primarily, but God, may our lives be blessed here. So that when others look at us and say, why is your life so blessed? We could say, abundantly, because we have a generous God who gives us wisdom. He hears our prayers, and he is attentive to our needs. May you always receive all the glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name.